0: When your kids were little, did you have songs in the car? Did you ever sing to your children? Where's our children? Some of them are here today. Who, who did you have playing in the car? Anyone have the Wiggles? Peter Coombe? Colin Buchanan? Ah, a few columns. okay. Maybe you taught your kids the ABCs to the tune of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star? You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, D. Did you ever realise it was Twinkle, Twinkle? I hope you did. Um, whether it was Peter Coombe or Play School, we had a few things going on in our car or Colin or the Wiggles. I always thought it was quite telling. Um, telling of what, I'm not sure, but when you drop the kids off at school or wherever you drop them off, and you go off in the car and you're still singing the kids' songs playing in the CD to an empty car, and you pull up at the lights and you're tapping away at the uh, the, the steering wheel and Um, singing, you know, I like it every day, spaghetti bolognese, crooning away to the empty back seat, or even tapping the steering wheel and tooting the horn to toot, toot, chugga, chugga, big red car. And all you get are some funny looks from the people next to you uh, at the traffic lights. But music can do that to you, can't it? It can be quite catchy. Some songs are like that, little earworms, and you can't resist singing them. Uh, even now that I've mentioned Spaghetti Bolognese and Big Red Car, some of you might even have them ticking over in the back of your mind. Thank you. You wait for it. Um, and is there a single Christian in the Western world who can read or hear Isaiah 53.6 now? For we all like sheep have gone astray without saying... Yeah, thank you very much, Colin Buchanan. But music really is a real, a wonderful gift to us, isn't it? from the Lord, in so many ways, from rituals and services and ceremonies to entertainment. People use it to prime the pump before their competition. We can use music to express our emotions. We can use it to evoke, stimulate our emotions. It's said there is barely, if any at all, a culture, tribe or nation in the world that doesn't have some form of music. Some form of music for some purpose or another. Not always for entertainment, as we tend to have used a lot of it for, but they have some form of music to communicate or for ceremonial reasons. Music really is one of those gifts of God to all humanity, isn't it? One of his common graces to us all. And one of the purposes of that gift, the gift of music, one of the reasons he's given us that gift is actually to use it to address one another, to speak to one another in song. Did you pick that up in our reading from Ephesians 5? speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, or address one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. We are actually to sing to one another. Now that passage comes in the middle of Ephesians 5. At the beginning of that chapter, Paul tells us, as beloved children of God, because of his grace to us, we are to imitate God our Father, like father, like sons and daughters. And we are to walk in love as Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us. And Paul goes on in this chapter to describe and instruct us in what this walk of love looks like and sounds like. What is it of God's character and him and what he's done himself that we should imitate? It involves putting away sexual immorality, impurity, greed and envy, anything impure and ungodly. It involves walking as children of the light, living open and honest lives in Christ trying to please God, knowing what pleases Him, and it involves walking in wisdom, verse 15, not being unwise but wise, making the best use of use of the time, not getting drunk with wine but being filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Now did you hear that? Did you hear it as I read it, in the way that I read it? It was a little bit different in the reading we heard so often we stop at the end of verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with a spirit. Or the Greek scholars will tell you, go on being filled with a spirit. And if not in our reading of that passage, in our minds so often we put a full stop there. Be filled with a spirit, full stop. And then we start speculating and debating about what it is to be filled with a spirit and encourage one another to be filled with a spirit not really knowing maybe what that means. But we don't need to speculate, and there is no full stop there, not in the Greek nor in the English, although sadly the old NIV and some other versions do put a full stop there. Paul actually goes on to explain to us what being filled with a spirit looks like and sounds like. It goes like this, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, Comma, addressing one another, in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart and giving thanks to him always and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here at least, being filled with the Spirit involves singing to one another, making melody in our hearts to the Lord and giving thanks to him. They're not separate commands. They're all bundled under being filled with the Spirit. I think sometimes the whole idea for us of being filled with the Spirit is this very personal, warm, fuzzy communion with God and direct access to Him. And it is, in one sense, that, but it's far more than that. It's far more practical and far more public than that. Being filled with the Spirit is part and parcel of our walk in love in this chapter. Without the help of the Spirit, Naveen sort of mentioned this a little bit already, hasn't he, we would be unable to walk in love. We don't have a loving bone in our bodies apart from the spirit in our sinful, fallen, selfish manner, nature. And you can't walk in love on your own, can you? You need someone at least to love, to walk with. So it's not just a personal thing between us and God, it's public, it's corporate, to do with this one body corporate that Phil was talking about a little while ago. And Paul explains here at least that being filled with the spirit, part of it involves the very practical aspect of life and worship, that is, addressing one another, singing to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. And then there's thanksgiving to God and there's our submitting to one another in our relationships in life. If I had more time, I could show us how in the context here of Ephesians with the Greek and the grammar and the phrasing here is actually less about being filled with the Spirit and more about who or what the Spirit fills us with. This is not just an instruction about don't get drunk, don't be filled with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. In the context of Ephesians, he's talking about no less than being filled with the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what fullness is in Ephesians. Or maybe even as he prays in chapter 3, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And that's confirmed if you flick over to Colossians, which we looked at last series, Let the word of Christ, this is the parallel passage, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Let me put it this way for us. When we are filled with the Spirit, Christ will be the one who is on our lips. When we are filled with the Spirit, Christ will be the one we sing about together with the Father and the Spirit. And we will sing those songs of Christ to one another. One commentator, James Montgomery Boyce, he notes that there are ten occasions at Pentecost during the books of, in the book of Acts and afterwards when an individual or a group of people is said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And in each case, the common factor is that the people involved immediately bear testimony to Jesus. I don't know if you know the prayer of St Patrick, sometimes called the breastplate of St Patrick or maybe even the deer's cry. Tradition tells us that Patrick wrote this prayer in about the 5th century AD for divine protection before he was going to try and convert the Irish king Leogair, I'm sure I haven't pronounced that right, um, and his subjects from paganism to Christianity. And it goes a bit like this. I arise today through the strength of heaven. Light of sun, radiance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, goes on to speak of the protection that God will give him against all who shall wish him ill, and then tells what that protection is. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right and Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every one who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me and every ear that hears me. That's the heart and mind and prayer and song of a man who is filled with a spirit. Christ is everywhere; he is our all in all. And that's exactly what Paul's teaching us here. Being filled with the Spirit affects what is on our lips, what we sing to one another. Because it's out of the outflow of the heart, isn't it, that the mouth speaks. And no less in our worship in song, as we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with the truth of Christ. And I don't care what kind of voice you have, whether you're a songbird, or more like a bellowing cow, whether you've got perfect pitch and can sing in beautiful harmonies or if you're completely tone deaf. This instruction is actually for us all. In the scriptures we hear how the Lord doesn't look upon us as we look upon ourselves, does he? We look upon outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. And I think we can safely say he hears the same way. He's not more impressed with those of us who can sing beautifully on the outside. He delights in those who sing with wisdom and with faith and love from the heart. Which for some of us might be great relief because our voices may not be that tuneful. But be encouraged, the Lord looks and listens to the heart. After all, Paul tells us here, make melody to the Lord with your heart. So there's hope for all of us, isn't there? It might actually be that some of us who are completely tone deaf might actually sound more pleasing to the Lord. We might be more a sweet, sweet sound to the Lord than someone who can sing beautiful harmonies but has no faith if they don't know the Lord. And that should be the same for each of us. We're not to just listen with to the nice tuneful but actually listen to the heart of those who are speaking and singing around us. We sing together as one body and we sing to God But also, as we're hearing this morning, we are to sing to one another. Which means we're to listen to one another, doesn't it? There's no point singing to someone if they're not listening. And that raises a question for us, actually. Not only with regards to our singing and our mindset as we come and sing in church, but in all of our worship, whether it's Sunday morning or the rest of our lives. But let me ask you this. When you come to church each week... Do you come with a view to get something out of it or to give something into it? Do we come to church to receive from God and from the experience of fellowshipping and worshipping together or do we come to give to the Lord and to his people? Do we come with a heart for one another, to give and to serve one another? Are we consumers or contributors in our worship? Don't get me wrong, I do hope and pray and trust that we do all receive from God as we come and gather each Sunday for worship. There would be something missing, there would be something deficient about what we're doing if that wasn't happening, if we didn't meet with God and He with us. But at the same time, we're called to be givers, contributing, to give glory to God and thanks and praise to Him at a minimum and to serve one another. We're to be contributors, not consumers, in our worship. I think in today's day and age, the whole consumer mentality has crept into the church. We need to be really careful. We need to be deliberately working against that. As I said, so wonderful this morning, we've had people unwell and unable to get here. People have willingly stepped up, keen to love and to serve in the ways that they have. It's not that we actually contribute or give to God any more than he already has. We can't add to God's worth or his glory, can we? But at a minimum, as I said, we are to give him thanks and praise and we give him glory as we love one another and serve one another, as we address one another in song. Maybe it's just me and it was more as I grew up, but sometimes I go to places in times of worship and song and I get the sense that each individual person is having their own personal time with the Lord. And that's wonderful, that's good, we need to have that. But sometimes I think we've got this own special personal connection to heaven and we're all sort of singing in worship with our own spiritual noise cancelling headphones, cutting out anyone and everything else. It's just me and the Lord and no one else. And that's actually so wrong when it comes to our worship because we worship as the gathered people of God. We worship as the body of Christ. We worship as the bride of Christ and we're to address one another in our psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, not just addressing the Lord. So think about it. When you're singing in church, where are you directing your voice? Where are you directing your heart? Who are you singing to? And again, don't get me wrong, there should be this connection, a communion we have with the Lord in our worship and in our song. Worship doesn't always equal our singing, but for this context, we should be singing to God. We should be listening to God as we sing. And I'll give you some examples of that in a moment. But you might recall from our Colossians series, there's also a third direction or a third dimension and dynamic in our worship. We should be intentionally working towards addressing one another, speaking to one another. Us to God, yes, God to us, but also us to each other. And as we sing to God and to one another, not only should our hearts be engaged in that worship, but our minds as well. You should be reading the words thinking through them i think it's harder now with screens than it used to be with an old hymnal because you can't see what you've just sung you can't sort of reflect on it the same paul says in first corinthians 14 i will pray with my spirit but i will pray with my mind also i will sing praise with my spirit but i will sing praise with my mind also why what's the context so that what he sings and what he prays is understandable to everybody so that the whole body might be built up and encouraged in the word of Christ, even in his singing. He sings with his mind as well. I've quoted these words earlier from another pastor, but they're worth repeating. People won't remember what you preached 20 years ago. Great encouragement to us preachers. They probably won't remember what they preached 20 years ago, but they probably will remember what they sang 20 years ago. So make sure the songs you sing in church line up with what's being preached. Which is why what we sing is important. We just don't get the top 10 or top 50 tunes that are being sung around the world. We actually look at the words of each of the songs we sing as best we can. Because it's the words that make our songs Christian in the first place, aren't they? Not the music, as good as it is. Sometimes we can get carried away with a beautiful melody and forget to actually read what we're singing. It's the words that make our songs Christian, and they're not to be taken lightly, they're important. But those words should also help direct us, instruct us in where we should be singing, who we are singing to. Let me give you some examples, each of the three directions. Firstly, God to us. In any, in one sense, any song or hymn that is quoting scripture is God's word to us, isn't it, in songs. It's God's word if it's scripture and it's being sung to us but actually a lot of that is us to each other as well. As I look through all of our songs and we've got over 500 I didn't go through them word for word there's actually not that many that are explicitly directly directed from God to us which sort of makes sense because they're written by people for people to sing to God in worship. But there are all those that quote scripture. Some jump to mind i've loved you with an everlasting love my grace is sufficient for you if you know that one or maybe what i call the new creation drinking song martin bleeby's go to my people and tell them that they are forgiven for all of their sin you know the one you can imagine a no you've never been to a pub with a guy full of beers have you that's god telling us to go and make disciples of all the nations So there are songs that are God speaking to us. And then there are tons of songs, aren't there, of us speaking to God, singing praise to God. Father in heaven, how we love you. Abba, Abba, Father God. I love you, Lord, my shepherd king. My Jesus, my saviour. Lord, there is none like you. The anthem of the, what was it, 90s? Or there are songs which are prayers to God. Come thou fount of every blessing. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you. The chorus of There is a Redeemer. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son. Who are we speaking to? We're singing directly to God, aren't we? But as I look through the words of all of our collection, the vast majority of them are, in fact, songs which are us directed to one another in song, in our words. Even many of the songs of praise, whilst they do give thanks and praise to God, so many of them are in fact calls to worship where we are encouraging one another to lift our voices to sing praise to God. We read the 100th Psalm this morning. All people that on earth do dwell. It's a call for everyone, listen up. Sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. It's a command telling us, telling one another to sing to the Lord. It's a psalm which addresses one another in song to address God, if I can put it that way. And that's the nature of so many of the psalms, hymns and spiritual songs we sing. I'm not going to try to go into what the difference might be between those three. But there are some more contemporary songs with a similar direction involved. Give thanks with a grateful heart. You know that chorus? Give thanks. We're telling one another to give thanks with a grateful heart, aren't we? Be still for the presence of the Lord. Quoting scripture, so it's God's word to us. Who are we telling to be still though? God? No. Telling one another, let's be still together for the presence of the Lord. Come, see the beauty of the Lord. Sing to the King who is coming again. Come, bride of Christ, arise. Who are we singing to? To the bride of Christ. And what about those songs? There's a few more recent ones, there's old ones as well, which actually ask and answer questions, a bit of a call and response. Some traditions you'd have a leader and a choir responding. Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who can whisper and darkness trembles? Who are we asking that question of? Of one another. And then we answer ourselves, only a holy God. Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The king of glory. It might be difficult to do it just with the songs that we sing, but every genuine worship service, I think, should have each of the three elements, the three directions of worship involved, whether it's through readings and prayers and songs and confession. We should be hearing and saying things which are God-directed to us, us us-directed to God, and us to one another. And if you think through what we do in a service, each of those dimensions are involved in some way or another. But why is this third dimension, this speaking to one another, so important? What are we missing out on if we don't include that? Surely it's important to just have this relationship with God, and it is. Well, firstly, simply because we're told to, right here, address one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. There's a New Testament instruction for us in our worship. Because we are members of one body, because we're members of the family of God, we sing together to God, but also to one another, to encourage one another, to teach one another. So rather than thinking of a hundred individual little beams or connections of communion between us and God in our worship, maybe it's too much of a sci-fi image, these little beams, but excuse that, what we need to be thinking is one great room full of beam, us up to God and us together, outward, in our worship and song, as a family, a conference call, if you like. Do you get the change of image? Rather than just this direct line between each individual, it's actually all of us together as a family? Because singing is one way that we actually join together, isn't it? We can rejoice together with those who are rejoicing as we sing with them. We can mourn with those who are mourning and weeping. And as we sing to one another, we're teaching and reminding one another of the communion we have together with God and with one another. Secondly, together with that command, our addressing one another in song is one of God's chosen means to actually speak to us the way he speaks to us, through one another. Hebrews tells us, doesn't it? God has spoken to us in many and various ways in the past. Now he's spoken to us through his son. And he's also chosen the means through which that word of Christ now comes to us in Scripture and in song as we speak the truth to one another in love, as we address one another in song. And as I said, music being such a gift that it is, it helps us remember. we we'll remember the songs we sang 20 years ago so we remember God's word better, don't we? Some of our kids will know Scripture verses better than we do because they've listened to Colin that many times. Or well, the only reason we know them is because we've listened to Colin with our kids. But it's not just good for our mind and our memory, it's good for the heart also. We've been going through 1 Samuel on Wednesday nights and it's been really good. It's been great, actually, and we sing together too. But we've just had this, um, the time where David has been called to minister to Saul because the spirit's been taken away from Saul and he now has this harmful spirit that torments him. And what's David to come and do? To come and play music to him and comfort him what a mercy of the Lord to actually give David to Saul. He's removed his spirit from Saul, but he still provides David with his music to comfort him. And we wondered as a group, and I think it was Naveen who raised it, but it doesn't tell us, but we thought, I wonder if David actually sang to Saul as well, or did he just play his lyre? Was Saul the person who actually got the first draft of some of David's psalms? Maybe he was the first one to hear Psalm 23. And he was comforted and relieved of the torment of that harmful spirit he heard about the green pastures and the still waters speculation I know but what a mercy of the Lord to provide Saul with that but at the same time the Lord can remove our song from our lips as well in Ezekiel 26 in a a word against Tyre he says I will stop the music of your songs and the sound of your lyres shall be heard no more it's a word of judgement Or in Amos, to his own covenant people, the Lord says, take away from me the noise of your songs. You think your worship sounds great? It's awful to me. I don't want to hear another word of the melody of your harps or your words of the songs. Instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So music is a wonderful gift and blessing to us from the Lord and his word to us in song. But when he removes it, it's also a sign of judgment. And thirdly, do you know the Lord himself actually sings? If not to us, he sings of us. In Zephaniah 3, the day of Israel's restoration is introduced like this. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Addressing one another. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He's in the congregation. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. The Lord exalting over his people in their midst with loud singing. Do you ever get a sense that the Lord is actually singing over us in your life or our worship? If it's good enough for him to rejoice and exult with a loud voice, then it's good for us, isn't it? Surely. Or what about Psalm 22, one of the great messianic psalms, the one that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the writer of Hebrews puts this on Christ's lips. Christ did did that himself, didn't he, on the cross. But later on in that same psalm, it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So there's the writer of Hebrews is telling us Christ himself, in the midst of the congregation, is singing the Father's praise to the people, to the brothers and sisters, to his brothers and sisters, us. Christ himself, not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, sings to us, telling us of the Father's name. He really is our great worship leader, isn't he? Which leads us to one final reason we should be mindful of one another in our singing, in our singing to one another. The songs we sing lift our eyes and our hearts to Christ. They encourage us today in faith and hope and love. But they also point us to Christ and to the day to come when we'll see him in glory. When we'll see the Lamb of God, our Bridegroom, in all his splendour. There's a number of psalms, you might know a couple of them, which begin with the word, sing to the Lord a new song. And that phrase, a new song, it's not just, oh, I might come up with a new little ditty. No, a new song is usually a song of victory. It's usually when a people have been delivered from oppression, saved from their enemies, that's when a new song comes. A song of thanksgiving for the salvation and deliverance the Lord has won for them. Psalm 40 makes that clear for us. It doesn't start with those words, but I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and he set my feet upon the rock. It's a word of deliverance, isn't it? And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to the Lord. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord because he's singing this testimony of his deliverance. And so our songs that we sing today are really joining in in real time, live stream in worship with the worship that's actually taking place in heaven for the deliverance of all the saints in in real time, but also in anticipation of the great day of the Lord when we will gather all together. In Revelation 5, creatures of heaven, the elders around the throne, they're singing a new song. Worthy is the Lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, to let times and days of judgment and salvation roll through history. Revelation 15, the Song of Moses, which is also the Song of the Lamb, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. And in Revelation 14, without trying to sound too much like an exclusive cult, there is something exclusive about our worship, isn't there? If we're worshipping the Lord in holiness, we are the saints, the holy ones. Only those who know the Lord can sing to the Lord that way. But in Revelation 14, whatever you make of the numbers there, it's only those who are redeemed from the earth who can learn the new song being sung before the throne in the Lamb. What a day that's going to be when we're all learning a new song together, singing praises to the Lamb and to God on his throne. Music and our singing, not just to God but to one another, really is one of God's wonderful gifts to us. And we've only scratched the surface this morning in the wonder of that gift and the nature of worship. And as it's been with any of the messages in this series, so it is here. Anything we sing to God or to one another is only ever on the basis, it's a response to the God's action and character, isn't it? For the Lord, his steadfast love endures forever. For he is great and has done marvellous things. Every song we sing is primarily a response to God's sovereign, holy, redeeming love and to the work of Christ, his grace and mercy to us. And so as we address one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, that's what we're telling one another, telling one another of God, of his grace, of the mercy and love of Christ. So if I can use some words from St John, the Apostle John, that we started this series with, connecting them with some of Paul's, I'd say this, without blaspheming I trust. Dear friends, let us love one another in song, for love is from God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another in song, word and deed. As we sing together, we can sing to one another the love of Christ, loving one another. To finish this morning in prayer, I actually want to do something a little different and I want to play you a song. We've just talked about singing to one another. I want you to to listen to the words of this song, Over the Rain. Um, It's a really beautiful piece of music, a really beautiful song. I'd normally put the words up for us to read um, so that we're actually using our minds, but I actually want us to engage our ears and our hearts and minds as we listen to this together. It's actually a version of St. Patrick's Breastplate. Um, I think it's the most beautiful piece of music, and I pray it would speak to you and would speak Christ to you this morning, and then we'll sing together.